0: Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We hope you experience God today. Make sure you visit us at risenking.life to take all your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. We're going through a study of the book of Jeremiah, and we're, we're talking about how it, in your Christian life, you're going to face these challenges, you're going to face obstacles, You're going to face storms, you're going to face different things, and in order to not just survive those, but to thrive in the midst of them, you have to have an ever-deepening faith, and you have to have understanding of how that faith deepens. So Jeremiah went through some of the worst storms, some of the most difficult challenges, and at one point, in the call of God to Jeremiah, he said, Jeremiah... You are called to run with the horses. So, in other words, you're not you're not called to just survive. You're not called to just, you know, make it or fake it till you make it kind of thing. You're called to be able to run. And then God said, If you can't overcome, you can't run. So when you begin to realize that you need this deeper faith, this rooting in faith and understanding in faith, you need to understand that there are some things that will try to distract you, to trip you up, or keep you from running in the call that God has in your life. And hopefully, you're here this morning, and you're recognizing God hasn't just called you to walk, but He's called you to run with the horses. And so in order for that to happen, you have to begin to overcome the things that take away your energy to do that. And one of the areas in which Jeremiah is so, so good at explaining is that if we don't understand our idolatry, it will keep us from running. If we don't understand a biblical idea of sin so that we can begin to actually get healed in those places and to change and be transformed in those places, we'll actually be like the people Jeremiah talked to who said, What, sin? We don't have any sin. And so they stayed in their guilt and in their shame and could not run because of the burden of their guilt and the burden of their shame. So the first thing I want you to look at with me is how Jeremiah explains idolatry. Now, in the Scriptures, you know this if you know your Bible, the first and greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. All right? Notice it doesn't say, obey the Lord your God. You see, you can obey and not love. You know, Because love is freely given. Lo- obedience can be compelled. People actually, if you give them enough rules, they'll align themselves to the rules, but they'll hide their hearts. They will do what they're supposed to do, but not ever have it touch at the deepest place. God is not interested in behavior modification. He is interested in a heart that can fully love Him. And so we see right from the beginning this is tested with our original parents. God, every day when He created, He said, it is good. So what is God doing when every day at the end of creation, He's saying it is good? He's saying, I'm the one who declares what is good. I am the arbiter. I am the standard bearer of what is good. But He prohibited them from being able to partake or eat of one tree. And guess what? The tree was pretty. The fruit was attractive. And if you read that narrative closely, Adam and Eve were standing looking at the tree. Now, if you don't think they're like you, all we have to do is say you can't do something, and that's the only thing you're interested in doing. Or say something is prohibited, and then that's the only interesting thing in the whole garden. And so they go, and they're there, and here's how the enemy seduced them. It's a patternable form of rebellion. He said to them, who told you this wasn't good? And then he says, you could be like gods." and it in the English, it's translated knowing good and evil. In Hebrew, it's a little bit more like this. You could be like gods who determine what you think is good and what you think is evil. Who is God to tell you what's good? And basically what he was saying is your sight could tell you what's good. Your longings, your desires, your lust could tell you what's good. And so, if you haven't kind of heard this voice say, wouldn't God want you to be happy voice? That's that same seductive voice that says, God doesn't tell me what's good. I tell me what's good. I tell me which job I should take. I tell me what I should do with my money. I tell me who I should be romantic with and who I should have sex with. And I tell me what I should do with my time because I determine what is good you see idolatry is actually spiritual adultery it is the the thing that says god you will not be the center you will not tell me what's good i will tell you what's good and when you are filled with anger i'm not talking about just did you have a you know a flash of anger but you have this frustration that's in you this Kind of temper that rises up in you, what you're really saying is, I know what's good, and the world isn't letting me have what's good. Your anxiety is basically a God taking place, it's dethroning God and saying, I know what's good, I know how these things should turn out, I know what should happen, I know what's good, and so therefore I can manipulate, I can dominate. I can deceive, I can do whatever I need to do because the outcome that I want is good. Anxiety, anger, unforgiveness are taking God's place. It's dethroning God. Now you're like, oh man, you just, I thought I could love the Lord with all my heart, now you're making it hard. It is hard because you have not loved Him with all your heart. You've loved what you see. You love what you can accomplish. You love what you can make happen. And if you really want to get down to a depression is when what you think is good is never going to happen. So again, it's God's place. God dethroned. God replaced. And when this happens, Jeremiah says, this is when you cannot run with the horses. This is when you're not deeply rooted when the storms come. And he begins to speak to the people very, very bluntly. And I'm going to have you read. It's a long passage. I'm going to have you read the whole thing with me. If you get tired, just take a little rest in Jesus. (laughs) Come back and catch up with us. But we're going to read. It's kind of a long. I want you to hear the heart of God for an adulterous people, for a spiritually adulterous people. Would you read this with me? The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of its harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives, I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce. But you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal. For long ago, I broke your yoke and burst your bonds. But you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree you bowed down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say, I am not unclean? I have not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there. A wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month they will find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, It is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, You are my father, and to a stone, You gave me birth. For they have turned their back to me, and not their face." But in their time of trouble, they say, arise and save us. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. So as you read this, I want you to ask this question of of yourself. How do you describe the darkness or the dark side in your own soul? How do you describe that part of you that is so attracted to either things or to people who are not good for you, who are destructive towards you? Or how do you describe others as you see them chasing after things that you know are going to destroy them or never going to make them flourish? Well, Tim Keller writes about this or speaks of this and he says, we are taught by our society that to use the word sin is wrong. In many ways, what he's talking about is that if you start saying that's sinful, or even if you say something is evil, you're actually being oppressive. You are, you are, you know, you're describing something in a way that's not uplifting or encouraging or in some way that, that, that's wrong of, of you to do so. And so Keller goes on and he says, this leaves us with a lack of proper vocabulary, to express what is wrong with the world. And, and, and this is really important, what he says, this next thing, is a lot of people have not used biblical definitions or bif- biblical descriptions of sin. The Bible, even here in Jeremiah, has a very nuanced definition of sin. And, and what I want to, for you to get today is that you have to understand the Bible's definition of sin and evil, not yours, or not our world's. In order for you to really have that deep rooting that will overcome and cause you to soar with, with Jesus. And so here's how Jeremiah describes sin sin is when you reduce God in your life. And when you reduce God, you reduce yourself. By reducing Him, you reduce your spiritual power to overcome the things that you face. But when you replace him, then you've got to replace him with something. And what Jeremiah is making clear to us as he speaks for God and speaks the Word of God is that you were created with an intense spiritual, spiritual passion. You, you are intensely spiritual. Whether you call it that or not, that's what it is. That's what God calls your soul. It's an intense spiritual passion that's looking for equally intense spiritual attractions. And when we misplace this, it becomes spiritual addiction. And so we can't just have some kind of modification of behavior, we actually have to have spiritual restoration. All right? So let's look at this idea of spiritual attraction, spiritual passion, which the Bible says every one of you is created with. Now, This flies in the face of a lot of self-help books today. If you look at self-help books today, they say, your soul is this calm pond. (laughs) And God is the God who speaks a word over the calm pond. Boring. No, your soul is a restless sea. Your your soul is chaotic. (laughs) Chaotic. As a matter of fact, what Jeremiah says, he takes the whole water image out, and he says, your soul is basically two aching arms longing to be filled with equally passionate arms. And that when your arms are empty, they have to be filled. They're seeking and, and searching for something to be filled. As a matter of fact, he says here, the only way I can describe your spiritual passion is to relate it to your sexual passion. Okay, So one, he says, there is an intensity of soul, an intensity of spiritual passion that can only be described, it can only be in some ways understood if you understand how passionate you are sexually. And the imagery here is pretty graphic. He calls you a donkey in heat. I love that. It's the name of our next book. (laughs) Only you'll know why it's that. In other words, your, your soul is so in heat. And then he says, don't worry, donkey. You won't have to work hard. They'll come find you. And they will, there will be those ready to couple with you. Now, he's not talking about the sexual ethics of Israel. He's talking about the spiritual adultery of Israel. He's talking about the soul search that's finding itself in partners and not discriminating. As a matter of fact, he, he says it so bluntly in verse 20. He says, For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds. But you said, I will not serve. But on every high hill, so every high hill is every, every altar that is dedicated to a god. These are all regional gods. They want security. They want fertility. And they want success. Sounds a little like America. So every high hill, and then he says, every spreading tree, So the tree speaks of fertility, reproduction, having a lot of children, having a lot of money, having a lot of livestock, all of these things. He says, there at every altar, at every fertility god, you bow down like a whore. Now, to me, it's just exciting today in church, we're saying whore. (laughs) And if it tweaks you, look under the hood, you've probably got a religious spirit. Because if the Bible calls it a whore, it's appropriate. (laughs) The truth is, whore is polite here. The Hebrew is actually much more impolite. It says, you spread your legs at every altar. You spread your legs at every fertility, God. Now, mark this day, Mother's Day, 2019... You're going to have to explain to your kids what the pastor was talking about. <laughs> and it's going to be a, be a whole family tradition from now on. Look, he's saying there is no other physical aspect of life that is and as intense as your spiritual passion unless you look at it like sexual intercourse. And he says, this isn't about ethics, this is about your soul. And when your soul opens up in its spiritual passion, there will always be attractions. But the problem is, those attractions will not always cause you to flourish. They can degrade you, demean you, and destroy you. But then he says, look, I'm also talking about your spiritual passion, like in this sexual imagery, because there's an aspect not only of intensity, but of necessity. Without the element that God gave to males and the element that God gave to females, there is no life. There is no reproduction. There is no new generation without this. And so, in a sense, what he's saying here is that your soul in its passion cannot exist alone. That 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 passion necessitates that someone else is, is corresponding to your passion. And it really, here he's talking about three areas that your so longs to be settled in. One is, is this: whether you recognize it or not, you're always asking the question, "Does my life have meaning? Do I have a purpose? Is there some reason I'm going through what I'm going through? You see, you can't describe or declare or even settle for yourself alone your meaning. You have to have someone else speak into that. And if someone else is saying to you a meaning other than God, that meaning is not enough for you. It's not a big enough purpose for you. Have you never noticed that the things you thought would be everything to you were not everything to you? Those things that you say, I can't live if living is without you, you know? (laughs) I said it was Bee Gees earlier. My brain is gone. I'm sorry. It's Nilsson. Look, when you say that about anything and you say, you're my meaning. You complete me. When you say that, you have given your spiritual passion to something that can't give you meaning and will only become a dumb idol to you and will distress you, disappoint you, and in so many ways let you down. But that's not all. It's not just an issue of meaning. You long, your soul is saying, Do I matter? Is there significance to me, to my life? Again, you can't look in the mirror and go, you're significant. Yeah, there used to be a Saturday Night Live sketch where this goofy guy would say, I, I'm handsome, people like me, You know, all of a sudden you're like, no they don't. No, you're not. You see, you can't give yourself self-esteem or it won't be esteem. It'll be delusion. I had a guy, one time come to me and says, I, would you help me work on my self-esteem? I went, oh God. He was creepy. He was one of those people around women. I went, stay away from the women at our church. And I can't go, you're handsome, you're smart, you know, you, you're special in a bad way. Look i, I got to say to you, if you fake it till you make it, you're still fake. Oh, 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 see, it is not you saying, yeah, look, I'm going to look in the mirror and say I'm handsome. It's, you, see, what happens is when you make it about self, you're esteeming something that's broken. You're esteeming bankrupt. It is only when someone who truly is Worthy says you have esteem that you can then go, I have esteem. The goal isn't to make it more about self. It's to settle self so you don't have to think about self. But that only happens when your eyes are fixed on someone who really matters and then says, you matter to me so you can settle that issue. You see, you may not be pretty according to the standards of society, but he thinks you're beautiful. You may not be as smart as somebody that you read about, but he thinks you have the mind of Jesus Christ. You see, when one who matters says you are matter, you matter who cares what anybody else thinks. But if you keep going, am I pretty? Today maybe, tomorrow maybe not. You know, I, it's just amazing how we go at this spiritual passion in all the wrong ways. But we're asking the right questions. We're just not getting the answers from the right places. And insecurity is huge with most of us. So here is what God is saying. You're trying to settle your fears with things you ought to be afraid of. This is what you must understand about fear. Many don't, don't really look at their fears. You see, you can take anger and you can say, I'm not going to be angry anymore. And you can let it go. But what you're afraid of doesn't go until you get something bigger than what you're afraid of. That's why the Bible says perfect love without fear because love is bigger than fear. God's love is bigger than anything else you're afraid of. That's why that song we sang today is so good. Someone's in the fire with you. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And a fourth one shows up. Someone's in the water, whether that's the Red Sea, and you've got to cross it, or whatever it might be that you're going through and baptism when you're in the water and Jesus is the baptizer. I mean, whatever it is, you begin to realize whether I'm in the fire or I'm in the water, I'm not alone. And nothing, that song says, stands between us me and Jesus. You understand? You have you have a spiritual passion. The problem is you haven't always put it into a passionate faith. I told the story last week, I'll just hit it again, that there was a pastor in one of the prayer summits that I led that said, I don't believe we need to be as passionate. I don't think we need this confession. I don't think we need these tears. I don't think we need times of long worship like we're doing. He said, all I need is to get up in the morning, read my Bible for about 10 minutes, and have my prayer time, and write in my prayer journal, and I'm good for the day. Well, it bothered me he said that. A couple months later, I hear he's left the ministry because he's been having an affair. You see, the passion will come out somewhere. It may not be in your prayer life, but it'll definitely come out somewhere. He wasn't passionate about prayer. He was passionate about a woman who wasn't his wife. Do you understand what the Bible's saying? The Bible is saying that's what spiritual adultery is. When you take all your passion and you divide it up among the gods. And those gods often are actually good things. Now, when we get these disordered spiritual passions, it actually becomes spiritual addiction. When you dethrone God, something gets enthroned. And so, so what Tim Keller, again, is, he's got great teaching on this. He says this, idols themselves are usually not sins. So the example that's given in the passage is wood and stone. You can't say that a tree is sin. You can't say that something stone is a sin. It only becomes a sin... When you put them as the center of your soul in the place of God. So really, when you take any good thing, anything, and you begin to say, this is my Father. This is my salvation. This I can't live if living is without this. See, a lot of people come to me at times and they'll go, Pastor, pray for me. If I don't get this job, I don't know if I'll make it. Well, that job has become an idol. Can't live if I don't get this job. Sometimes it'll come, oh, please pray that this woman will love me. And that, that woman I won't, you know, and says I won't be able to live without her. That woman has become like the idol of stone or wood. And guess what? It will never satisfy. When you try to get comfort or security, you try to get meaning out of somebody else, what happens is it becomes an obsession. It becomes an addiction. Not all addictions necessarily are sin, but all sin is addiction. It is something that replaces God so it becomes central. It becomes something you can't live without. You know something is addictive to you when it's taken away from you. When you can't have it is when you go, oh my goodness. Man, I need that. I have to have that. And truthfully, in the the Bible... God speaks to this, and he he describes addiction 2,600 years ago better than some have described it today. Here's how he describes it. He says, when when you have dethroned God, and you have to have something, he says, it's like you're running in the desert with your feet bare. You see, when you have to have something, you... You'll run in the desert to get it with no shoes on your feet. You don't even think about how you're burning and scalding your feet. If you've ever been in the desert, you don't want to be without shoes. And yet, because they have to have, they're fixed. I don't care how much it hurts. I have to have this. And then in the desert, they, he says, you go without water. Your throat is dry. You don't even notice that, that you're, you're dehydrating because you have to have this. This is such a clear picture that that when something becomes central to you, you will destroy yourself to have it. Well, this is a really biblical imagery here. Stay with me on this. Do you know when God was their God, the leather never wore out on their shoes? And where were they? In the desert. And when there was no water, he could even speak to a rock and feed hundreds and, and, and slake the thirst of hundreds of thousands of people all at once. When the water was poisoned, he could speak into the water and the water became sweet. Are you not seeing what he's saying? These ones that you chase after, these ones that you spread your legs for, They don't care what happens in the desert. They don't care how thirsty you are. And then he speaks this way. He goes, all right, you're in trouble now. So go to those gods, the one you called Father. Go to the one you called your life. Go to the one that you called Savior. Let them save you. See, what he's doing here is not meanness. It's not cruelty. It's the greatest way to teach is through discovery. So when you are in trouble, he says to them, then turn to your lover gods and see if any of them will save you. Now this is an incredibly relevant modern issue. If you have not noticed, every crisis... God is complained about for not protecting. We want a God who protects us. We just don't want a God who directs us. (laughs) We want His protection. We demand it. We expect it. But we never realize that we have given ourselves to all other kind of gods who have no intention of protecting us, but in their direction they addict us. And so God speaks to his people in this way. Are you hearing me? So then, how do we get restored? If we have this intense spiritual passion, if there are these incredible, easy spiritual attractions that lead us to the fact that we're obsessed, addicted, and saying our life is found in something that maybe even was a good thing, like family or job or or health or our future, whatever it might be, but we've tried to settle these issues of meaning and worth and even our own security in dealing with our fears. How do we get restored? Well, there is a draw here, but you have to begin to diagnose well. You have to begin to ask the question, what is more my Savior than Jesus? What is more real to me than Jesus? What do I look at and say, this is where my life is other than Jesus? because that's the place where the idolatry has kept you from going deeper with God and running with the horses. So how do we do this? Well, I'll give you three things that I want you to realize. You have to personalize your own understanding of sin. It is not simply that we get a bunch of rules and then we try to keep score of how well we keep those rules. That there are things that we go, well, I ought to do this and I ought to do that. And just basically make sin this very superficial kind of morality. Because even your morality can become your idolatry. Because if that's at the center, and then you fail, then you can't forgive yourself. And so, so we have to personalize sin on this level. It is not simply breaking the law of God. It is breaking the heart of God. Now one of the things that, that is so powerful in the book of Jeremiah and why I want you to get this so much is because God said to Jeremiah, to a teenager, I'm going to give you my word. And then he gives him his word. But in Hebrew, the word isn't word. So it's not a bunch of words. It's not a concept. He says, I'm going to give you my burden." And what we see is Jeremiah becomes the weeping prophet. Now, his life was hard, but that's not what he's weeping about. He's carrying the broken heart of God. Now, this utterly blows me away as a theologian. This blows me away in my concept or even my understanding of God because you can't get away from the Scripture that He's holy, that He's transcendent that He's sovereign, that, that He's almighty, that He's everywhere present, that He knows everything. And yet, when He reveals His heart, He reveals a bleeding, broken heart. And Jeremiah is carrying the broken heart of a husband. He's carrying the broken heart of our God. And he's weeping. Now this is so important that you read the Scriptures through the broken heart of God. Because many of us have read the Scriptures as if God were scolding us. As if we're being scolded. Have you ever responded well to scolding? Let me tell you mine. So on Friday, you see, every now and then I have to change my oil. Okay, So I have to go someplace where they have fried food that I like in order to change my oil. My oil was a little low. All right, so I go to Cracker Barrel. That's my place to go change my oil and get greasy country food, southern food. But when I go, I have to have catfish. And I have to have it made the way they make it in the South. All right, so it it has to have cornmeal on it. So I ordered catfish. They brought me something that didn't look like catfish. I'm a catfish expert. (laughs) So I tell the waitress, this isn't catfish. She says, on Fridays, we do it different." I get to check, it wasn't catfish, it was haddock. I can't change my oil with haddock. So I take it up to the counter and I said, this is not what I ordered. And the manager looks at me and, well, you should have told us. I said, I did tell her. I did tell her. And she said, but if you had just told her, then we would have changed it and made it right for you. And I'm sitting there going, she's scolding me. A customer service representative is scolding a customer. And you know what it made me feel? It made me feel like she was the superior, I'm the inferior. She's the smart one, I'm the dumb one. You know, somehow, and, and, and it's at Cracker Barrel. I mean, it's not fine dining, people. And I'm being treated like an idiot at Cracker Barrel. You know what, it didn't... It didn't make me want to change except never go there again. Come on, am I getting it? I, I kept this emotion just for you. <laughs> you understand, when you're scolded, you don't become what they're correcting. You want to entrench in it. And so when God is speaking to you, He's not scolding you. He's revealing His broken heart to melt your heart. To make you see. Did you not hear what He said as we read in the beginning? You were my bride. We were on a honeymoon together. When other men came up to you, I smited them. I got rid of them. If anybody touched you, you were holy to me and nobody could touch you because you were mine and I was yours you not see? Then he finds out, he says, you're sleeping with everybody else, not me. See, if you don't start hearing God's words through his broken heart, you will simply say to him, what's the minimum requirement to get into heaven? What's the minimum requirement so I can say I'm a good person? What's the minimum requirement of what I have to do to be a Christian? And God says... Do you not know that you are breaking my heart? And until sin becomes personal, not just a scorecard, you will replace God. See, you will say when it is inconvenient, God, get off the throne. I'm choosing what's good for me now. I'm going to do what will make me happy. This is the marriage I want, this is the job I want, this is the house I'm going to buy. This is the life I'm going to live and as long as he's off the throne. Then you're breaking his heart. Are you hearing me? So once you realize that, really what he's saying is my people are divorcing me. I have never gone through anything worse than leading people in the church through a divorce where they had promised to love in an unconditional way and now they have found the end of their love. Sometimes through betrayal, unfaithfulness, other things. There is nothing more difficult. But what God is saying here, what you must hear, is He has made Himself that vulnerable to you that you could divorce Him. Do you get that? Wow. So then, what must I do? Well, He says, remember. So you realize, you know, you realize that this is personal, then you remember grace. And he says the reason you forgot is you forgot who saved you. So one of the ways that's important, now, I'm not trying to make this legalistic, but listen, you won't remember if you're not with people who remember. That's why we have corporate worship together. And that's why we make corporate worship passionate. We want it to be passionate because if you don't find your passion here, you'll find it somewhere. Remember. That's why your friends, some aspect of your friends, have to be people who help you remember. And then also, the idea, and this is kind of like the final one here, all right, is you have to rehearse. Now, the reason I say that is because what restores you is to remember that you're a bride. I have been doing weddings for a long time. I have never yet seen a bride come to the altar and go, wait a minute, I forgot my mascara. I need to go back, or, oh, I, lost, I left my tiara, or I forgot my veil, or whatever it is. I have yet to have a bride who wasn't perfect at the altar. I mean, every single one of them, their dress, their makeup. Why? Because they looked in the mirror again and again and again, and their friends told them you know, everything and all this stuff. It, it, did, it was rehearsed how beautiful the bride would be. But think through this with me. What is Jesus saying about you as the bride? Well, here's the verse. Why do my people say, we are free to roam? We will come to you no more. Does a young woman forget her jewelry? A bride her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me. You see, the bride rehearses. Now, <laughs> Lisa has this thing where she loves to watch say yes to the dress. And it is a train wreck of a show. (laughs) And so, you know, you can't turn your eyes off of this train wreck. You know, I think I learned more about human beings in this show, you know, and stuff. So I'm watching this show, and and they're getting down to the moment where they're choosing the dress, and they're, they're on the fence, and these good salespeople go, let's get a veil on them. Let's get a tiara, a crown on. Let's get the jewelry. Let's get everything together. And they call it jacking them up. They say, let's jack them up. <laughs> and all of a sudden, they've got the veil, they have the crown, the tiara, they have whatever goes with the dress. And they have this beautiful dress on. And everybody's crying. All the family's crying. All their <laughs> friends are crying. I'm crying. <laughs> And I'm going, please say yes to the dress. (laughs) Here's what Jesus is saying. He's the one who jacks you up. See, he's saying, you're an imperfect bride. You can't even pick out the right dress. But he's the jewelry, he's the crown, he's the veil, he's the makeup. And here's what... I know from being a pastor, seeing every perfect bride. In Ephesians 5, Jesus says, he will present you spotless and radiant. See, why do I rehearse? Because I don't even have a dress. I don't even have the jewelry. And Jesus says, I'm all of that. I'm your covering. I'm your makeup. I'm your veil. I'm your crown. I'm your jewelry. I'm your dowry. And I will make you spotless and radiant for all eternity before my Father. Nobody else can do that. So once you, kinda, once you start to realize this sin is personal, and once you begin to say, I'm committed to remembering who saved me, it wasn't wood, and it wasn't, uh, it wasn't stone, wasn't my job, wasn't even my family, but it's the one who's my jewelry. It's the one who's my crown. It's the one who's my veil. He alone makes me spotless. And He alone makes me radiant. And in Him, I'm the perfect bride. Would you stand with me? I can't dethrone the idols for you. I can only point them out. But the bridegroom is asking, will you, will, you, will you change? Will you let your heart melt? He's not scolding you because He can't bring you back scolding you. It's His kindness that leads us to repentance. It's the joy, not the fear of the Lord, that is our strength. And you see, He has a joy in you when you are a bride in Him. In Him, you're spotless. In Him, you're radiant. In any other place, you're just a broken down old whore. Choose. Nobody can make the choice for you. We can help you remember. We can rehearse your wedding day. We can help you see the idols that you're not recognizing, but only you can choose. Choose this day who you will serve. Say this day, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Lord, you know our hearts. We can't fake it with you. You know what's on the center. But I guess it just blows me away that you become so broken hearted. That you, the eternal God, can weep and grieve because I won't make you the center of my life. Wow. What a thing. What humility. What vulnerability. That you would make yourself so transparent that we could even divorce you. There is no God like you. There is no Savior like Jesus. There is no love like the Holy Spirit's love. Take over my heart again, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes it's really important to take moments like this and share it in prayer. We have some prayer ministers who will be here at the the stage, at the platform. Come make this an altar where you give your heart afresh to God. God bless you. Have a great Mother's Day.